Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. And I'm David Jenkins. On the show this week, film vendors paints a portrait of a quiet existence in perfect days. Food is the language of love in the taste of things, and David spoke to its radiant star, Juliette Binoche. Bob Marley's life comes to screen in biopic One Love, and we'll cover a couple of the highlights of the Berlin Film Festival. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, David, just the two of us, much yeah. like uh, the subjects of a couple of these films, we're struggling to forge connections beyond one or two people in our lives. Well, indeed. But, like, I think it's probably worth telling the listeners how our threesome dropped down to two and the reasons. You know, the, we have to blame Madame Webb. I mean, we if, Ma- if Madame Webb yes. isn't already been blamed for enough in the world. But, yeah, the, my lovely colleague Hannah Strong was going to be joining us today for the podcast. But due to the fact that there was no, well, I think there was press screenings. I know, no, I don't think there was any press screenings for Madame Web. I, I don't believe there were um, press screens. I think there may have been a few kind of junket yeah. ones, but none like kind of for review screenings. No, a lot of people have kind of carted themselves off to public screenings to to see it for review. And you know, I think it's something that is important as a public service broadcaster that we are to cover. And so, because uh, Hannah is actually going to be flying off to the Berlin Film festival like early doors tomorrow so she wanted to fit in a a screening of madame webb before she left Uh, and there was also a lot of a fair few logistics involving her lovely cat margot as well and the cat sitter so she bailed out at the 11th hour leaving it leaving us to to fly solo on this week which is fine you know because i think that people need to know about madame webb i mean you know when you're listening to this you know you're probably going to be thinking about thinking like well but what about madame webb and uh you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we can't say because we haven't. We, along with everyone else, haven't actually seen it. I I don't believe that's something I'm going to carve out any time to see. I've I've heard not great things, but I've heard there's one really excellent joke, and I don't think I'm going to go and watch it for this one excellent joke. But I mean, thank you, Hannah, for her service. That hopefully I'll be able to at least find out what the one joke is, and that I don't have to bother to actually go and sit through whatever this sort of abomination of a of, of a film is. Yeah, maybe it'll come up on TikTok or something. Yeah, I mean, they they, they say TikTok is a force for evil, but if it, if it does that for us, I, I I say keep it around. I mean, yeah, it does seem a bit strange, though, like the state of the MCU. We've had so many kind of clangers in a row, so many, like, disappointing ones. 
This seems to kind of be talked in the same way that like Morbius was. And now there's been an announcement also that they're going to significantly reduce the amount of things that they make and kind of focus on quality over quantity. Does that reassure you in some ways? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like I think the market has spoken and, you know, that there's been a run of these films that just haven't connected haven't made the same box office. You know, they had a, a, a mighty run where they 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 really had kind of captured the zeitgeist, and they were and they were sort of building this thing where you kind of had to see everything. And I just think they got greedy. You know, they want they want they wanted to expand mm-hmm. the world too wide, and I think it sort of hit that point where it became evident that people don't just want to dedicate all their precious viewing time to the extremely expanded Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think that, that they maybe had, like, it was an equilibrium that they hit very nicely, but then they expanded too far. And, you know, imagine the sort of cinematic outer suburbs that people just don't really want to have the time or inclination to explore. So I think that's where we're kind of at, at, at the moment. I, I mean, it's a cynical thing to say, but, like, I don't think they're going to be able to do what they did again with the with the Avengers and, Cap- you know, Captain America and Iron mm-hmm. Man, where they had that, you know, three mega brands that were just doing really well for them. You know, I don't want to see, like, Ant-Man 5. I don't want to see whatever it is, like, Doctor... What's his name? Doctor... <laughs> I, I'm even forgetting their name. I mean, the fact that you're a film what? critic and the... <laughs> <laughs> we doctor who's a what you know and yeah, mr, mr. What's, his, what's his chops funny face yeah. <laughs> um but you know i mean yeah i guess these things can dominate and then just die i mean like you know disco died the western fell musicals. off like it, it seemed hard to imagine five years yeah. ago but like this we might be at the end yeah this is the thing that i'm sure there is probably some rules of like or theory of saturation where, you know, you can, you, you kind of jump onto something that's good. I mean, you know, you get it with like food trends as well. Like let's do gourmet burgers. Oh, these are successful. Oh, you know, every, every other shop on the high street is a gourmet burger place. And then there's a kind of Armageddon of, of gourmet burger places because there's just too much gourmet burger. I mean, who, who uses a sun-dried tomato anymore? Do you remember when they tried to reinvigorate the cupcake by making it even more mini these yeah. days? <laughs> You can kind of get a last final gasp for air, but uh, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to be back in that sort of like Black Panther should be winning an Oscar sort of conversation in the foreseeable. But something that has lasted more than the superhero movie, at least, uh, the Berlin Film Festival, where you mentioned Hannah's off tomorrow, and I believe you are too. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't been for a long while, actually. So I'm off on Saturday. I'm really keen because it's the last festival of the current artistic director, Carlo Chatrian, who was uh, previously the artistic director of Locarno Film Festival. And he really not just reinvigorated that festival, but put a very kind of personal stamp on it and and made it a very you know you, you really got a sense of 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 what he the kind of films that he liked and there was a real sense of curation and he's done the same thing for berlin and i think there's been a kind of outcry because the festival doesn't perhaps have the kind of glitz and glamour that this kind of a-list festival needs or or would be expected of it and so the lineup does have a fair few kind of esoteric films in it and you know some directors that you know he has kind of personally championed over the years so so that's really uh, that's really exciting so I, I wanted to kind of go over and actually experience it before he passes on the baton to the to the lovely Trisha Tuttle who uh is obviously like was was um London Film Festival 
head honcho for for many years mm-hmm. and you know i'm sure she'll take it in her own direction and uh, and you know i guess and, and I'll, I'll be very excited to, to attend the a tuttle festival as well so i think for a festival like this it's a it's definitely one of like exploration of like you know diving into the sort of weird weird and wonderful sidebars and trying to find something new rather than sort of having things that you're excited for so yeah that's that's my kind of focus for, for the little for the sort of window that i'm going to be there Anything that you're particularly kind of going to make sure that you carve out time to see? Yeah, there's. I think there's a new film by the South Korean filmmaker Hong Sang-soo who uh, makes you know a couple of films every year. You know, I think they're sometimes sort of hit and miss, but he's 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 hit a really good stride at the moment. And this current one that he's made has got Isabel Huppert in it, so his second one with Isabel Huppert. So that should be fun. I'm looking forward to like a new the new film by the French filmmaker Bruno Dumont, who um, you know his career started where he'd made these highly controversial, like you know, violent and sex sexualized art movies that really kind of alien like people seem to you know they were real kind of love or hate prospects and then he kind of just sort of gravitated towards comedy and satire and in the last couple of years he's been focusing on comedy and he's made like a comedy sci-fi film called called the empire so i'm really keen to see what he does with that and it's got like special effects in it and you know he's made he's made kind of mystery sci-fi horror film like tv before because he's in this series he did called little can can which is really really funny but yeah his stuff is is still it's it's sort of wild and and, and very much a kind of love it or loathe it prospect still but yeah I'm, I'm i'm excited to see what he does with that anything that you're slightly wary of that's uh that's coming out not to be too much of a downer mm, not really I, I mean i think that the line up is pretty solid they've, they've they've hoovered up the kind of best of Sundance as well so you've got Rose Glass's Love Lies Bleeding Annie Baker's Janet Planet and also Aaron Schimberg's different, that... different Man wasn't Janet Planet from uh, sorry from, like, you're, you're right Glass, you're yeah. right Janet, Janet Planet was from New York Film Festival so yeah um that that's that's from there but there's there's a few other Sundance titles in there as well which you know I either catch up with there or wait until they come out later but as I say it's best as a festival for discovery for me like the the, they've got this sidebar called the forum which has more artsy difficult fare where you're going to be challenged and you and and you're going to see something you've probably never seen before and in previous times that i've been to the berlin eye i've always tried to sort of at least one once a day dip my toe into the into the forum and just pick something random to see the other side of cinema so yeah i'm excited to do that again this year but even though it's been a while was there like a particularly great experience that you ever had with just kind of dipping your toe into the experimental side of cinema and taking a risk that really you know reaped rewards. oh yeah i think maybe one of them was seeing leviathan mm, by yeah. um lucy and casting taylor and verena paraval who, who do who are part of the harvard ethnographic film unit of my de- beloved de humani well, corporis indeed, indeed and this was an, one of the early films that they did you know they had they had this one film called Sweetgrass, which was very good but this was on another level and you know and that was it was at the locarno film festival it may have even been a carlo chatrian programmed festival i can't remember that exactly but yeah it was it was a real like wow you feel like you're at the you, you're you're there seeing Seeing something completely new, completely exciting and radical, and you know, the language of, of cinema sort of and the possibilities of cinema kind of changing in front of your eyes. So yeah, that was probably that was probably a really memorable one for me. Obscure one, but memorable one. I'm gonna i I'm gonna seek that out. Um 
yeah, uh, De Humani, I think, actually generally changed my perspective on like literally what the entire form could be. And somehow we haven't covered it on this podcast, but I don't know if that's because it never was technically released. Or, no, or it sort of slipped that. out very subtly, but um, I think it's, I think it was on Mubi. It might be on Mubi still. Maybe Mubi feels like a good home for it. So, Yes, the fine people of Mubi are listening. For the love of God, put it on your platform if it isn't already. But yes, we should move on to our first film. Someone who arguably did change the fabric of cinema, but has been acknowledged for it. It's Vim Vender's Perfect Days. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Hirayama seems utterly content with his simple life as a cleaner of toilets in Tokyo. Outside of his very structured everyday routine, he enjoys his passion for music and books, but a series of unexpected encounters gradually reveal more of his past. So, David, I've spoken to you at length about the miracle that is Paris, Texas. Vin Vendors does nothing better than a sort of protagonist with a lot of inner turmoil. Do you think he sort of captures the same magic in Perfect Days? Um, yeah, in, I think he's definitely going for that same same magic. As much as I, I think this is a, a very fine film, I, d- I don't perhaps think it's up there with something like Paris, Texas, or, or or like some of his earlier ones like Alice in the Cities. But I mean, the thing the thing to say when contextualizing this film and talking about it as a Wim Wenders film is this: it's maybe his best film since his best fiction film, at least since. Paris, Texas, because he has definitely been someone who has I don't not drop the ball, but he's 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 made you know he's made some very some films that are very kind of personal and like very quite strange that just they kind of lack a connection they don't work some of them genuinely very bad million dollar hotel you know his 90s were bad and i think people were hoping that he'd come back in, in the noughts and he really had it and if anything his naught his his noughties were even worse yeah i've seen some pretty terrible ones there wasn't there a josh hartnett vehicle oh yeah a lot, lot of things that you kind of erase from your memory yeah i mean he was definitely do, doing fiction films and you know he was pulling in some some really big stars i mean he did his his previous fiction film to this one was called Submergence um, with Alicia Vikander. And it just, it was, it, it was very, a very Vim Vendors film. It was almost like a Vim Vendors meets the James Cameron film in that it was a woman who goes in sort of very deep sea submersibles and has kind of these hypnotic experiences when she's sort of down in the water and she's having this love affair with James McAvoy who's on on dry land and it's just it's like you know it's like I can see what you're doing here but it's just wrong and absurd and I guess getting back to perfect days he's finally kind of worked out the algorithm again you know that he's worked out how to make a fiction film that feels pleasurable and coherent and you know i think that a lot of the issue with with the films he's been making over the last sort of almost fiction films over the last like 30 years is like i feel he's really strained for meaning like he's really strained for profundity something that he kind of gets quite easily with his documentaries like anselm and um and pina as well which are the, the two the two really great films he has made this century and he's i think he's finally i mean it's 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 a relief to be, if anything else 
And I think that, you know, it's it's great that he's being being able to do this kind of victory lap. It's, you know, the fact that it's Oscar nominated and, you know, he's 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 kind of he's he's back on the scene. And, you know, I think he's he, he deserves it. I mean, the fiction films that you mentioned, uh, well, I mean, you mentioned obviously Paris, Texas, which is sort of a place. Wings of Desire is one of my favourite ever film. But also I think Pina and Ensemble have got a real sense of the place that like birth these people and the way that's that sort of like informs every kind of frame of the film. Do you think part of what makes this a return to form is because it's got such a sense of like Tokyo? Absolutely. Yeah. It's what, probably worth mentioning that that he's known for his road movies. That's the name of his production company. And, you know, he tends to make films about people going on these journeys. And sometimes he makes films about his own journeys. And he made one in the, uh, in fact, just before he made Paris, Texas called Tokyo Gar about a, his trip to to, to to Tokyo basically documented by himself and Robbie Muller and it's him sort of searching for his love of of the films of of Ozu as well who who is who has been a massive insp- inspiration for him and that film Tokyo Gar it's 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 a really fun film but it's definitely it, there's definitely a, a case of like tourist outsider who is kind of slightly exoticizing the landscape a little bit and is kind of slightly bemused by some of the kind of local custom and it you know it, it the fact that they have like you know wax models of the food and they they play pachinko and you know there's 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 something that's a little bit kind of like isn't it strange over here whereas i think with perfect days there's much more kind of like he's much more embedded in 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 japan in tokyo there's no there there is no sense of like he is the outsider gazing in he is the tourist he's trying to immerse himself in this world and try and trying to make something a little bit more like credible and and authentic and it does feel like you know you you could watch this film and it'd be like oh this this is a kind of coriander would might make a film like this you know and you 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 could you could maybe like not not tell that it was from someone who who wasn't from japan i mean as films go this is very very dialogue light and actually people that i've spoken to have seen and really admired this film seem to mostly kind of bring up the kind of final shot which is like dialogue free which is just someone's sort of expression changing back and forth i mean i suppose we shouldn't spoil it too much but do you think that perhaps operating not in his own language like there there might be a bit of an over-reliance on dialogue free imagery in order to sort of compensate for that to not kind of be like the perpetual outsider maybe but i think that i think there's enough dialogue from other characters i mean it's it's you know so to explain that the main character he he's a toilet cleaner but he's someone who's presented as being very comfortable and content with what with his job because what his job allows him to do is 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 kind of seek these other very like modest pleasures in his life one of which is um watching baseball and he likes to read like William Faulkner novels and he likes western rock music and you know he 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 collects tapes like rather than CDs or records he listens to them on, on tapes as he drives around in his van and um i guess there is something that is like celebrating that sense of quiet quietude and the humbleness of this existence you know i think that what what the film is saying is that you know you can find pleasures in the smallest things if you're willing to kind of be patient and willing to look about them and maybe sometimes even willing to not question them in your own mind and yeah the main protagonist's you know hushed sensibility is very much part and parcel of the person he is and it doesn't feel like contrived 
that he's that he doesn't speak very much although that's what what should be said is that as you hinted before like although he doesn't speak he's still extremely expressive and you the performance is 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 incredible in many ways and it feels like a kind of silent film performance in that he projects emotion through the kind of facial nuance and you know exactly what he's thinking and feeling for most of the films and how he kind of projects to to the camera and to other protagonists in the film yeah no the performance from koji yakusho is absolutely extraordinary he's got kind of there's something haunting about his face and i do believe the sort of emotional you know vacillations of like so many of those scenes that where we only kind of see them through his expressions would be really really hammy Mm. in the hands of 99.9 percent of actors yeah it would be seeing something that's a bit kind of caricaturish yeah and I, I, in fact i think that this is probably going back to something about vendors that one of the things that has that has sort of like damaged some of his recent well most of his recent fiction films is that he is quite sentimental filmmaker like he, he you know he kind of lavishes in sentimentality and i think this this film and this setup it has potential to be very sentimental like very very kind of you know, gooey, and and it's just and it, and it just avoids that. So it's like you know, I think it feels like he's acknowledging this thing that he's been doing for so long that has that has hampered so much of his work and has actually reversed it. But in a film that you think that it's weird that you think it could have it could have been his most sentimental film ever, and it re- and it kind of isn't because it's 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 just a bit it's a bit more sort of subtle and steely and a bit more sort of you know he's he he's far more kind of relaxed and and not so desperately intent to make these kind of grand statements about the world and 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 in doing that i think he achieves the opposite which is which is a which is a positive like he does you know it is a richer film for the fact that you're not being kind of told stuff and you're not being told what to feel and what to think yeah it it sounds terrible but like now all i can think is whilst we're all whilst we're contemplating the sort of subtlety of film vendors hannah is stuck somewhere hearing about how someone's mother died whilst researching spiders in the Amazon. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like but that level of just, oh, good Lord. There's a rumour that that line has been cut from the final film, so she's not. she, she might not even be hearing that. So yeah. it's, no, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning, though, that Hannah is a big fan of this film, and she, and she did a, uh, an onstage interview with Vendors and had a great time. And, she, and, you know, I think if we pretend that she was here, if we're speaking on her behalf, which we always should do, I think, then, we, we, you know, we should, we should say that she, she, she's a big booster for this film this film as well but in terms of like cold hard tax what are your scores going to be in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect well i'm gonna say like probably honestly my anticipation was two because i have been stung by by vim vendor's fiction films many times and you know i didn't see this one in can so it, it, you know obviously it, it had it had a much better reception so actually maybe up that to three because you know it did you know pe- there was a wave of people who were like, you yeah, know, this is actually him back on form. So, you know, maybe that's a three, probably four for enjoyment. And then maybe a three for in retrospect. I I, I maybe, you know, it's a very, I think it's a very ple- pleasurable experience, but it kind of just, you know, it sort of whisked away from me after, after seeing it. And, but I think in, in, in many ways, that's part of its charm. I don't think it's a film that's going to sort of necessarily change people's lives, but it's a very kind of, zen pleasurable contemplative entertainment as you as as and when you're watching 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not far off. I'm probably at a full three, four, four because I loved Ansem so much and so I really did think that we were on an upwards swing when it came to vendors. Three in enjoyment because yeah, I mean when you have two films I think so close together. It's almost like you are forced to choose sides. And I felt like, oh, I am a Ben Vendor's nonfiction renaissance, but I'm an Anselm. <laughs> like, but um, yeah, for in retrospect, I think that, I think it was, the only one that comes to mind is lovely. I think it was kind of, there's something like exquisite about it, even if it doesn't quite kind of create the same existential reimagining of, of the self that um, something like Wings of Desire does. Uh, yeah, next up, it's The Taste of Things. <laughs> Cook Eugenie and her boss, Dodan, grow fond of each other over 20 years, and their romance gives rise to dishes that impress even the world's most illustrious chefs. When Dodan is faced with Eugenie's reluctance to commit, he begins to cook for her. Before we get into the film itself, here's David talking to the one and only Juliet Binoche. Hopefully it's recording. I, I, the first question I'd love to know is, like, how familiar with, were you with the, the films of Tran An Hung and prior to coming on board with this, this project? And right. Did, is it, when you kind of come on board with a, with a filmmaker like this, do you, do you look at their work or...? Well, I knew the Centre for the Green Papaya and, you know, would enjoy the the way of entering this world Mm -hmm. and the sensuality that he's not frightened of. Mm -hmm. And then Cyclo was suddenly something else. (laughs) And in the, you know, the violence and... And it was a very different territory, but being Vietnamese, I found it so interesting that it could go that far with it. And then I didn't see the American films, you know, he's done. He's done mm-hmm. a couple, I think. Oh, yeah, the one he did in between. Yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, I, 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 the last one I saw was the Norwegian Wood. Right. Oh, right, right, right. Did, yeah. yeah. Then I saw the the uh, Eternity that he, he did in, in France, I saw that, and um, I wasn't sure at the beginning when I started watching it. And then as we were going into the film, I was really attached to it because mm-hmm. I, I understood what he was doing, even though I was a little um, frustrated with the acting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when he proposed me, because we bumped into each other, he came on the set of the Hersha Shin film. Yeah, And so we spent a little time together, and I liked his way of being, you know, this kind of soft-hearted mind and that has this fragility that you can feel and strength at the same time because it has really both together. Mm. And so we talked about, you know, working together. But when I saw Eternity and knowing that we were going to be shooting together when I read the script, I thought, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, I'm going to be, no, uh-uh, the, the, the interpretation, wait for what I'm saying. <laughs> I will make sure that there's emotion in every single shot. Uh, because in eternity, sometimes it was this kind of flat way of acting. Mm-hmm. That is interesting because you're going through, you know, from one generation to the other to the other. So the film does it for you. Mm-hmm. But I felt it was also some places empty. And so that I thought, uh-uh. I'm not going to let it happen. Mm-hmm. So a couple of times he came to me while we were shooting and he said, can you play neutral? And I said, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he was a little astonished that I answered, you know, to him. 
so straightforward. No, I can't. I don't know what you mean by neutral. And is new is that even a possible state to be in as an actor? Really, it's a very good question <laughs> because it's a mind. It's a mind request. Mm-hmm. It's not a body request because you know, as actor, you've got to link every stages of the human being. But it reminded me actually of Bruno Dumont, who asked me while we were shooting Camille Claudel. He said to me, "Now, this scene, I don't want any emotion. I want the camera doing it for you." So I said, "Okay, what does he mean by that?" You say, "You don't do anything. I'm going to cut the scene in pieces, and if you had." You know, it was like to above, uh, how do you call it? A bull, a bull saying, I will do like Eisenstein. <laughs> you know, that way it felt like, you know, he thought was Eisenstein, <laughs> you know, superiority. And so actually he shot the moment I'm on the table writing and there's a moment I'm overwhelmed and my pen falls And I fall and I'm upset. Mm -hmm. So I followed his road, what he wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't involve myself emotionally. Mm -hmm. And he cut it in the film the way he wanted. But for me, it didn't work. Right. That woman is (laughs) not good acting, doesn't believe. I don't believe. I don't believe it. Even though he tried with the cut of the, of the film. So Knowing I have a little history with that and asking the specific of the neutrality, which meant for me, I want to be in control of what's going on. Because, of course, the actor being in front of the camera, you know, the director needs the actor and cannot control everything. Mm. So in in refusing to be neutral, uh, it was my implication of, you know, as a free artist to say, this is not the way I want to go. <laughs> but then everyone else seems to be on board with you as well. I mean, you know, Benoit and all the the other actors, are, they're, they're kind of operating at that level too. You know, there's, there is no, you know, no one else is being neutral. No, but it was only that moment, probably because I asked him, why did you ask me that? At that moment. What was the moment? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it's when I'm saying... I think it was the moment I'm eating this soup after being sick, you yeah. know, recuperating, and it comes with a broth and to put myself together. And when I'm saying, uh, I'm so happy and I'm so uh, reconnaissant, mm. I don't know how you say that in English. Je suis tellement reconnaissant. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful. <laughs> and he wanted to me. To be neutral at that moment, there's no way, because it's, it's, it's about me talking to Benoit. And so I asked him afterwards, you know, and he said, well, because I'm, I worry sometimes that actors overact, which is my fear <laughs> as well. I hate acting and I only love the being, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and not seeing the acting, which I think it's, it's terrible. But I'm glad I, 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 I you know, I resisted. Because I usually don't resist very much because I, I, I love giving the best, I, you know, I can. And I think it's really a co- cooperative work, co-creation work. So I like to say yes, because it's, 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 it's more heart lifting mm. for everyone. But on this one, I needed to make sure that he allows the emotion to live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at the end, you know, after a few takes, 
I did uh, maybe three different versions. He tapped on my shoulder and said, I think it's good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. In, on that note, this is a, a different film, but one of my favourite moments of yours in, in any film is in, is in the scene in Code Unknown where I think it's Michael Haneke is directing, he's telling you you're trapped in the room. Right. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just, it, uh, not, not only is it a remarkably dramatic and chilling scene because you're playing it so realistically, it's an incredible film about, a piece about the relationship between the, the director and the actor. Right. And, and it's sort of, from that scene, there seems to be a suggestion of like, there is a, the, the director is the god and the actor is kind of the, the prisoner almost, you know? <laughs> Do you see that rela- relationship a lot? In Not films? at all. Or is this something that Hanukkah is sort of playing with a bit? Hanukkah loves actors because he knows how, how difficult it is, how he's depending on them, how he needs them. And also because he's been doing some... Uh, workshops with uh, uh, a coach called Susan Batson. So he knows what it means. And he's learned with her as well, the layers of acting. And I never felt like he was playing God at all on set. No, I I never felt that. I I felt more collaboration and mostly, you know, with great directors, it's like that. At the end of the day, of course, they're choosing the, you know, the, the takes and the... The drawings, if I may say, uh, mm-hmm. of the you know the ups and downs of a uh, of the emotional uh, journey and with the takes they're choosing, but it's still depending on on the actor's skills of being able to to give, you mm-hmm. know, despite themselves sometimes. But I've never seen it being a hierarchy kind of co-creation. Mm-hmm. I've always felt it was the uh, codependent. And and usually, if I had felt that you know uh, dichotomy is because there are two young directors who don't understand that <laughs> you know they've got a modesty is the first time yes. to really get into co-creation. <laughs> it's the first step to go you know and and so it it it's a lack of maturity yeah. Yeah, in yeah. my opinion. But, you know, in that scene you're talking about, it's like, show me your real face, show me your real face, you know, it's uh, your true face is an interesting question. Yeah. You know, what's the true face? And it's a question that uh, an actor has to ask himself or herself. It's like, what is my truth? Where do I start? What's my route? And there are many paths to go into that route. And with a Susan Batson, for example, you go with the, you start with the need. What is your need as a person, actor mm-hmm. playing the part, but also for the part? What uh, what's the need you're choosing for the character you play? But sometimes the not knowing is even deeper. So it happened to me that I chose to not know anything. And it's so frightening (laughs) because you have to expose yourself into this jump of not knowing. But it's so interesting to put yourself in that state. Mm -hmm. state. You have to trust so much yourself (laughs) in that unknown and so much yourself and so much the director as well. On that note, I'd love to, to know a little bit about that sort of idea of knowing and uh, I guess sort of entering into a character. And I'd love to know for this for this film, how much did, did you look into the the kind of history and the, the maybe looking at the original book that the film is adapted from? Like, I know that your well, character in there is, yeah. doesn't really have much of a presence and this is the kind of... Yeah. No, the book had read like 35 years before. Oh, OK. Yeah. 
Uh, so I knew about the book, but I knew also that he was going to do a prequel of it because the Eugenie's character is not really she's <laughs> like present. Memories, isn't she? Yeah, she's a, a flashback kind of a character, and and so I didn't go back to the book because I didn't need to. And also, I cook, so, you know, I didn't need that much of uh, prep for it. And, of course, I, I went into Wikipedia to understand who was Antonin Carême because I didn't know him and, and the Escoffier uh, that came afterwards and all that, you know, sort of uh, French art of, uh, of cooking that was coming with the story of uh, Antonin Carême. And it's very moving in a way because it was coming from... A family of 14 kids and was left on the side by the parents and was, you know, adopted by a family who was a cook. And then there was, he went to another cook and they were sent to study architecture and came back into cooking and putting together the architecture, these big cakes of like, uh, like monuments, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> castles and churches and whatever. And uh, so it's interesting to know that. But I didn't have to, you know. There are films you don't have to prepare mm-hmm. because you know you have enough in you and you're going to discover as you're going into it. And also, my kitchen has always been a very important place mm-hmm. at home. I've always had the best conversations in, in, in that area and that's where family gather and where you know the most interesting conversations happen because you're in the middle of action of doing things and meanwhile you feel like sharing or you feel like drawing or painting Mm -hmm. or because while you know the kids are painting also because meanwhile you're preparing the cooking because you want to make sure you're you know they're not in the other side of the, the house or the apartment one thing i love about the film actually is like i mean most of it takes place in the kitchen I mean, mm-hmm. the, probably the majority. Mm-hmm. The way it's set out, and the the way that the where the tables are, and where there's the little table in the corner, and where the doors are, it seems like dramatically the sort of perfectly aligned space. What what was it like? Did you have kind of free access yeah. to the space when you're kind of acting in it? Or oh, is, absolutely. Yeah. But it was specific. I mean, we was it a set? Or was it was it? It was a set. I mean, we really. It was not in a studio, but mm-hmm. we really shot in that little castle. Yeah, that's near Angers, and often we refer to that region like la douceur angevine, la the softness mm. of that region, Angevine. And uh, because it's a very mild place where it's not too cold in the winter, it's not too hot during summer. So it's a kind of a place that is protected and soft and warm. And so uh, so this this uh, room where they put the kitchen, this big kitchen, they transformed that salle de garde, we call it, mm-hmm. which is when you get inside the castle, that's the, like the big entrance at the time they had uh, this big entrance thing. Uh, so they really put it, a stove in and a, the table and made, you know, different areas in order to tell the story where, you know, the place where Dodin is writing his recipes and, you know, where you take the water and, and they added a little uh, ancient stove from the 17th century next to the chimney. And so that was particularly, you know, chosen by Hung, who's very precise in his uh, way of preparing. And I think, you know, he calls himself a technical director mm-hmm. because he knows 
how to use the camera, how to tell the story, you know. And I have wonderful conversations with him about uh, directing, you know, like saying the cut is really what makes a director. Where do you cut? And the contrast between one shot and the next one, uh, how the contrast can be only in the sounds or only in the light or that you discover something always new as you go into another shot. And it's fascinating. And why do they, he puts us into a sequence, you know, instead of a, having a, uh, you know, a shot and a, a reverse shot. Mm-hmm. And, and so all this is, uh, is very uh, specifically chosen. And what I love working, you know, uh, with him is that, of course, he's thinking about, you know, how to shoot uh, but at the same time, he's very open. When you come on set, prepared to go and shoot here and makeup and costume done, he wants to know how you genuinely go around and how it can happen. So there's, there's a feeling of freedom and, and yet being taken care of because it's it's the worst when you go on his, on a, you know on the set and the director has no idea how to shoot things mm-hmm. because you feel okay I'm going to do it then and so it, you have to have somebody sustaining the the, the that responsibility mm-hmm. of you know of I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to take care of the sh- you know of the scene and and yet being open enough to be able to participate as a as a co-creator mm. or as an actor. This might be a little bit of a technical question, but I find this kind of fascinating. I understand like when actors are shooting with food, like if you're doing lots and lots of takes where you have to kind of keep eating, thinking of that, like the sequence where you ha- where, where Dodan is making you the big, the huge meal, how, how, how long did that take to shoot? And what, what, you know, what, what, were you having to eat all these oysters over and over and over again? <laughs> is, is there a way to do that, is, I guess, like a you know, technique? You know that when you have to eat in a scene, you have to eat for real. Uh, because so much of the a film is about you reacting as well. Of course, movie. yeah. And he wanted me, he wanted us, you know, with the other actors, to experience real beautiful cooking, like an art way of cooking. So he wanted to uh, shoot the surprise of it. And so there was not a lot to add because it was there. (laughs) (laughs) And so also very, you know, when you know you've done the first take being good, Mm -hmm. well, unless you call Kislovsky and you don't need a second take, (laughs) but usually you do a second take just in case there's a problem. So that's what we did. But when it's good, it's good. You move on to the next shot. Mm-hmm. And usually what happened is that Hoon would ask me if I would do another one. And sometimes I, I'd say yes, and sometimes say no, we're fine. I think we're fine. We, we got it. So, but there was, I, I don't recall it, you know, being like, oh, one small time. Because it's uh, one more time. Because it's, it was, you know, when it's perfect food, <laughs> you yeah. know, you just react with this person perfect palace and that's fine you you carry on it's not palace how do you say palette 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 Palette. yeah sorry (laughs) i wondered also how pierre pierre gagnier yeah yeah were you working with him at all on on the film did he was he did he give you any when it came to the kind of cookery like what one of my one of the things i absolutely love in the film is and i think it's one of the most thrilling shots in the year is when you take the turbot out of the out of the pan because <laughs> you're kind of like your heart's in your mouth hoping that it doesn't kind of fray oh. <laughs> and the, but the and you're and you 
I'm watching it and think, oh my god, that the technique is is incredible. And right. It feels like you know. Right. Really professional. You know that this is part of like your. Right. You, you know, total. You know, ingrained in you. And I wondered if Pierre had had sort of given you all lessons or, right. or you, know, you know. I didn't meet Pierre until the end of the film. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, he came on set while we were shooting once, and so I met him there. Oh, I met him before that because I went to his restaurant once before, you know, like a few years before. But his right hand, who's been working with him for 46 years, was there all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was asking all the questions I had and wanted to have some tips as well because, you know, you want to hear all the secrets about cooking, of yeah, course. Yeah. But the turbo thing, what is, Piaz is saying is that, first of all, as a chef, you need love. And then after, you need technique. He doesn't put the technique before the love. Right. And I found it interesting. <laughs> and also he said, at the time, when he, he says, uh, when I studied as a, as a chef, mm. or as, a, as a cook, uh, the turbo was much bigger. He could get big turbo <laughs> and very cheap. And now they're smaller and expensive. <laughs> That's what he said about the turbo. But... For me, it reminded me of my grandmother because she's she used to, like veal, she would do into milk. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know the turbo was you could do it with milk as well. That I didn't know. Is your grandmother who you learned cooking from? Or what, how did you how did both you pick both it up? grandmothers? I I I yeah, I observed you know some of the cooking they were doing, mm-hmm. and I do cook the same things they were doing because they're. It's related to um, to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's related to the being fed by love, really. So you want to have that feeling again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and give it to your children as well. I think it's very important to teach your children how, how to cook a little bit because it, it's like a root of being human, making sure that they, they can go in life with their some ways. It's like language. Yeah, yeah. You, you want your child to be able to speak. You want to have your child able to cook. I'm, I'm laughing a bit because I have a, a young daughter, and she's rich. She loves cooking, but she wants to she she wants to kind of run run before she can walk. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Very she, well. She wants to do everything. Yeah, I know very <laughs> like, well. Another element of the film that I really loved is this idea of the you know the Pauline character coming on as an an, an apprentice, and you're you're sort of taking her under your wing and you know talking about you know just referring to what you were saying about your grandmother and passing this passing this knowledge on and I wondered it's like do do you as an actor do you have lots of young people asking questions to you wanting wanting to to sort of be a kind of apprentice to you or Mm -hmm. um you know are there people that you kind of take under your wing um yeah I've been uh sharing questions Mm. uh about acting and and uh, I, I'm always interested because it's uh, it's about humankind and how you you recreate life mm. through you, you know. And uh, it's always very interesting. What what's the you know the inside path you have to take? Because it's always between how do you deal with the needs outside and what's inside, and how do you come towards the outside from the inside and and so it's the back and forth that is fascinating and and how do you put those words into a real feeling or 
you know, feelings into those words. Mm-hmm. How do you put it together? It's it's always a fascination to me because it's uh, it's a learning process. It's uh, it's a lot of undoing ideas, you know, breaking stuff inside you that mm. wants to prove you can do this or the will is like a wall that doesn't allow you to really be mm-hmm. and so it's uh, how do you get you know how do you transform this will into a path and not to into blocking you yeah uh, and it's uh, all this you know questions that are so fascinating and and for me that's why i love acting still because it's uh, in front of a camera with you know, lots of different energies and and demands, different demands. And, you know, it's uh, how do you put it together? Mm. So it becomes, uh, you know, deep and and light at the same time and reachable and, and yet myst- mysterious. It's all this chemistry that is uh, fascinating. Mm. So I always love talking about it because... Because it's more into questions, more than answers as well. And as a young actor, I remember, you know... Uh, uh, not always being able to uh, to understand how you reach this place. It's like uh, the fil d'Ariane, you know, the the Ariane thread. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you have to. Your own journey belongs to you, but yet you have to really open your ears and eyes uh, to really, you know, see a possible way to transform. Because it's all about transformation, really. Mm-hmm. Always. Thank you so much. Uh, for thank time. you. You're welcome. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In a film like this, where kind of food itself becomes kind of a bit of a cinematic language, I'm wondering, like, has your perspective on food and film changed ever since a few years ago you did the sort of food and movies issue of Little White Lies? No, not really. I think that like, you know, that that issue we kind of did in the deep of COVID where food had become a real central pleasure of people's lives because of the scarcity of, you know, live culture and, you know, basic human interaction as well. So like, you know, it it really felt like I think we jumped on that idea because it really felt like people were expressing themselves artistically, culturally through like 
make preparing food because that was one of the few few things left that people could do and you know it was always it was nice to kind of dive back into to food movies one of my all-time favorites is like stanley tucci's um big night i make a timbalo every time i'm sad oh wow (laughs) Wow, that's you, how often are you sad? You, you don't seem you're, you, like you're sad that often. I mean, I don't know. I think we probably get a, 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 a seasonal timbale, like once every okay. four months, a timbale comes okay. out. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I think that, like, then you don't get many food films of this caliber. Um, this this is kind of for me up there with the absolute best of them. Um, if you know, if not one of the best, I, I was I, I was a big fan of the director Tran An Hung, who is uh, who'd made this this amazing film called The Scent of Green Papaya. Very similar tonally in that it's kind of capturing the minutiae and and very very sensual filmmaker capturing very mm-hmm. very sort of sensual aspects of of like family life in a house in Vietnam. And this one is kind of him bringing this sensibility to a sort of early 20th century, I guess, French farmhouse where in which you have Juliette Binoche as a kind of ma- master chef, I guess. And, or, 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 you know, she refers to herself as a cook in the film. And and then you have um, Benoit Magimal as Dodin, who is this, he's a gourmand. He's like a... A, re- a revered gourmand and you know someone in whom people have gr- you know great respect and he seems to live this life of coming up with ideas for menus and coming up with ideas for dishes and having having Benoche's character Eugenie make them for him so she she is the kind like in many ways he's you know he's the director and she's the cinematographer you know he's the, she's the one who is kind of wrangling with the light while he's the one who's sort of like telling her what 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 needs what needs to be achieved i mean i think food food films i'm less interested in food films that are about like showing completed food you know like here here is the end product of some food isn't it beautiful because that's just kind of like marketing um magaziney kind of stuff whereas like this film is 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 about the process in fact it's not even that interested in in like the final product but it's about like how you actually get to that final product how you make the world's biggest um volavant you know and you know i I think that there's some of the most beautiful things i saw in the cinema last year was juliette binoche cooking a turbot in a in a fish kettle and the way she kind of handles the fish with just the utmost respect and and almost kind of eroticism i don't want to you know i don't want to maybe overstate that too much but there is like it's all about the kind of tactility of of cooking and presenting things and 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 it's like and the artistry as well of of making these these beautiful dishes and meet meeting a sort of standard that is so so high that most will not even kind of comprehend like w- you know why this is good why this works why this is a, a kind of magnificent achievement so yeah but there is also a romance well i always think food is a a, a love language even i believe for pop psychology that's a sort of theory that's been pretty widely discredited but yeah it's, it's one of the reasons i love um eat drink mad woman so much in terms of like food movies because like it has a kind of similar setup not quite as long as this one but it starts with this like meticulous preparation of a incredible looking meal and then they sit down to eat it and the family acknowledge that it that doesn't actually tastes very good because it turns out you know the man you know the chef father who's been preparing it is losing his sense of taste and it sort of acknowledges the limits of cinema and actually conveying like actually what 
you know, the, the sensory experience of, um, of food is. But um, David, I would just say that you have, you did accidentally massively insult Dodan earlier on, because one of, uh, as a previous person who worked in the food industry, there is nothing worse that you can call someone than a gourmand. The truest insult you can say to someone is that you are not a gourmet. You are merely a gourmand. <laughs> a gourmet oh, is a really? person with fabulous taste. A gourmand is just a greedy person. <laughs> ah, interesting. Well, I, I stand corrected on, 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 on I, I take your semantic lesson. Well, now you, when you're in highfalutin food circles, you know how to ah, kind of passive aggressively so a, a gourmand is a someone. kind of like, is a sort of like self-styled gourmet think um, the program man versus food that's a gourmand ah uh, interesting well you know i, I think i've maybe Here, been using that term incorrectly for my entire life um right. you've probably okay, left a, a lot go- of very uh, upset people in okay. your wake but yeah i mean it's a very like his his role is i you know i don't believe you'd have someone like him in existence now people who do what he do, do does in the film are, are essentially celebrities like they want them they want to be kind of adored in mass circles and they you know they want to sort of like get their stuff out there whereas he is a very private guy you know he 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 is he is someone who well when uh, getting invites from 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 like royalty passing through he's he's a ming and whether to accept the invite and experience that these these kind of ostentatious menus that have been put together the, the the original title for the film was called pot au feu which is um reference to a dish that he like he goes to, he goes to this uh dinner with a prince and it's like you know the the amount of courses they have is just absolutely obscene it's like almost rolling into the to sort of triple figures and and he decides in, in as his riposte he's going to invite the the prince over and make this thing called pot au feu which is like the most kind of humble hearty french peasant food that you can you could you could make it's like a, it's a kind of boiled beef and vegetable broth but he's going to kind of elevate it into into high art with the help of eugenie and um the film actually like rather than being interested in in that kind of one-upmanship and machismo and all that kind of stuff it's, it's actually it's far more interesting in like his relationship with eugenie they they have a kind of sexual relationship but they're not partners and all that you know that, that she is kind of rebuffed many requests for marriage and you know there is still a kind of distance between them as kind of like that their professional relationship doesn't maybe allow them to become a, a couple even though that they're working in such harmony that you think it would work but you know there, there is an uncertainty on her part that she doesn't want to she doesn't want to ruin this idyll I mean, we we often have mentioned on the podcast that like france just seems to have this like steady stream of like films for grown-ups in the way that perhaps in the UK we we don't get so much you think this sort of falls into this category as being like a mature film with mature themes I mean when you say it like that you instantly think of like you know oh there's going to be some extreme sexual violence in it and that's very much not the case for this film it I mean it, it it is in that it's I think that what like some of the stuff that it's dealing with about human relationships and love and what 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 that means and how that relates to our kind of professional lives and having to sort of 
I'm t- like you know time as well like the sort of inexorable ticking of the clock I think that might be better understood by by a mature more mature audience in that you know the two characters here are kind of you know they're they're, they're sort of slightly they're not teenagers or 20 somethings they're people who, who you know who, who have who are very worldly and have had all this experience in their lives that's not to say I don't think like a younger audience wouldn't appreciate this film because I think that one of the sort of sub themes of it as well is that it's really beautiful actually like it's about the tragedy of 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 potentially losing all this you know like death is sometimes something where is a case of like you're you're losing this repository of knowledge and skill and that maybe maybe that our time on earth should be about asking how we can actually pass that forward and bring it to the next generation and not be selfish about uh, this our, our our the skills that we have and you know part, part of the film there is a sort of a, a I, I guess you what would you call her like an intern or like I a guess su- you'd sous call chef her or? a commie no sous chef would be like normally second command commie is normally signed of like almost like apprentice role like yeah, you're learning it, the different it, stations it. the different skills so it's like an apprentice thing and and she 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 is someone who is who they have earmarked as having this kind of great talent and a you know really kind of complex taste as well and yeah so so like you know the, the the focus in the end becomes about like how can we pass this on how can we continue when this knowledge is is seemingly gone into the dust and yeah it's just it's a very kind of beautiful film. it's it's one of those films where i don't think there's really a kind of there's no like three-act structure to it it's very kind of just sort of drifts along and it passes along with the season it just has beautiful scene after beautiful scene and it doesn't tease you with the food preparation it's really all about that like there's so much of it in the film it you know that it's it's a really important part of like the the pleasure of seeing this film but yeah i i i uh i've i've seen it a couple of times now and just love it i'm a big fan as well i don't know if you know this but the person who consulted on this film is a very famous french chef called um pierre gagnier and he's kind he's of in was, the film he, yeah he's in the film very briefly but i think he consulted on the food and to me like knowing as much about his kind of history as a chef as i do it felt kind of like strangely confessional and like slightly about him because he was kind of very much at the forefront of like preserving these old french techniques kind of having a real sense of like french history and his food but then also including kind of modern elements in his restaurants in France and, you know, got every accolade going. And then he did kind of the opposite of what Dodan did when he came to London. He opened a restaurant called Sketch, which is everything that's wrong with food culture in one place and has gotten every accolade and will charge you £40 for a gin and tonic and the food is terrible and overpriced. And just like, if you want to see what selling out does, you want to see what inauthenticity is go to that so it just kind of yes whilst he still maintained this space in france where he really is like a master of his craft so yes yeah, i felt like i was watching a little bit of a, a sort of sliding doors version that's of, fascinating of, of, that's of really, i didn't i path. did not know that i did you know that does put an extra sort of dimension on the film and i mean you know like i think that the role he plays is the prince's chef who who actually lists you know, he he announces this menu. the The film kind of cuts off before it's finished because it just because it's just never ending as a kind of joke. And yeah, maybe maybe that like you know that that's a bit of a joke on him and his you know his his perhaps latter years kind of selling out. But I th- I think what what he what you know, the practical practical stuff he brings to the film though is is incredible truly and very much more based in his origins. So it felt to me yeah it felt like a little bit of a kind of longing for what he'd 
not left behind because his restaurants in France still exist and he is one of the most celebrated chefs of, of our time, but I couldn't help but think of Sketch when I was listening to him list off that menu. But if you want to get some scores on this in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Yeah, I'd probably go for like 455. Chan An Hung hasn't really done a film for quite a while. He had one that he did maybe like five or six years ago that never really got any kind of a release which i haven't i haven't seek sought out but yeah this was this is a kind of mega return to form for him and back to those those really great films he was making in the north and he he did a i'm actually a big fan of his um adaptation of um murakami's norwegian wood which i know people are quite mixed on because it's quite it's quite a kind of maudlin novel but like i really like that as well and I, i think that this is a great movie i hope people go and see it and it's it you know it it's not just a kind of flavor of the month type thing. Worth saying in a very kind of blunt force way that the performances from Benoche and um, Majimal are, are extraordinary. It really kind of hangs on their performances and and how much they're kind of they're just present in those roles and you believe that they that they are that that, that they are having these reactions to the food. Yeah, no, absolutely wonderful film. I I I really do agree. I think I was a two coming in. I have to say because I, I kind of had just like visions of chocolat and thought it might just kind of be a bit twee. And I am a little bit protective when it comes to depictions of food and what like the craft takes. As soon as that sort of long extended opening sequence where they're making a meal happened, I was yeah just on cloud nine so maybe five four in retrospect um i'd be excited to watch it again without sort of my expectations and also i i I do question i was very hungry when i watched it (laughs) (laughs) and i'm not sure in which direction that would have tempered my experience but i would be curious to see it on um a not so empty stomach next up it's one love One Love follows the music icon Bob Marley from the mid-70s until his untimely death in 1981, where the reggae superstar and activist faced violent backlash, personal crises, and creative conflicts. So David, we weren't necessarily actually going to even cover this this week, but we were aware that we both saw it, and yeah, disappointed doesn't begin to cover it for me. Did you have high expectations coming in? Yeah, modest like it was one it was a film that suddenly started seeing like billboards and ads for everywhere like a real kind of blanket marketing campaign and when you see that i guess the suggestion is like oh it's like a film that a distributor is putting some money behind and they're trying to promote and there's value in it and they that this is going to help it be really successful you know sometimes when when a, a distributor doesn't see that value in a film they can they can kind of dump it a little bit and you you know you, you see you maybe see a few ads on the, the tube but that's it so i kind of felt felt like oh this this wow this is a bigger deal than than i imagined the other thing that i thought was like the fact that it's called bob marley one love which is the title you know, the title of the film I just thought it was a documentary, like almost a sort of a few hours before I went to see this press screening. I was like, this is a documentary, right? And then I sort of looked it up and I was like, oh, no, it's actually a fiction film. But with a I guess it's that thing of like the name one love 
wouldn't have necessarily translated into 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 viewers' minds that it was going to be a Bob Marley film, so they had to kind of very inelegantly stick Bob Marley in the title just to sort of hammer that home. It's a Bob Marley film. But I think what they've done by accident is make people think it's a documentary, but who knows that that might have just been me so yeah i anticipation not not necessarily muted but con- confused <laughs> i mean i would say that like in some ways the best bit of this for me was the sort of real life footage montages that happen over the credits so maybe it should have been a documentary that footage was fabulous i i really think that there's there's a thing with these films that it, it's so often the case where you you're watching this film where you've got someone who's cosplaying as a as a music star or you know or something and then you see the real footage that like they always do it over the closing credits you know they they're, they're almost like they're kind of that what they the reason they put that footage there is pure hubris to say look what we've shown you is real look how close this is to the real footage you know we we have we have made this kind of duplication of that and and this actor has got all these 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 nuances and mannerisms down and this accent and etc cetera, etc cetera. but every time you watch that footage and you're like this is so much better this is like it makes the it always makes the film look bad every time i just I, I i feel that like if ever you if ever you can get away with it don't bother showing us the the reality that you've you, you've duplicated because it's you're never going to be you know it's never going to be better <laughs> but it's even more puzzling in this case because we have in this i mean this is uh what six years or i think five or six years of of his life that we're covering and like you get a lot of times where he's talking about a thing he really wants to do like he wants to unite these warring factions in jamaica he wants to tour in africa and then they don't show them to you and then they put the footage of him doing it in the montage at the end to the point where i was sat there thinking like was there a fire with a hard drive or some film because it even though this is not a short film, it felt like some footage was missing. Like, I could not understand the logic behind what they show and they don't show. Like, why did I see him play football so many times? Why did I see so much about the album cover of Exodus and I didn't see him touring Africa or the incredible moment where he kind of brings jamaica's opposition together and you know like all of the things that he accomplishes and i think the stuff around his death was very very weird where they kind of make him seem foolish i don't i don't i i don't know what happened here because i quite liked king richard yeah no same same this so yeah the, the same same director behind king richard Ronaldo marcus green and this this film just feels generally quite rushed and one of the weird things about the film maybe you felt this too at the screening is that i'll go into a biopic now and i'm i'm sort of pencil i'm sort of crossing out two and a half hours in my diary as a kind of like mm-hmm. well you know if it's someone really famous like this then there's no way they're going to bring this in under two hours and this it's 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 about like 90 minutes i mean it's it's it's, it's it like under a hundred minutes this film like which is very strange for a biopic like you're you're like there's you know something has to be missing and yeah you're right i mean you know say what you will about the film bohemian rhapsody at least they end by showing the the live aid performance and you're actually mm-hmm. seeing that and then they're, they're actually taking pains to replicate it uh, 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 you know whatever other faults that film has and there are many you know you at least you, it, it gives you the full picture whereas this 
this one just kind of cuts off at a point and you're like, oh, we, we don't actually need to see that or see that done or I don't know, maybe maybe they filmed it and didn't include it in the edit. Like maybe it just didn't work or, you know, I don't know. Like maybe they always knew that they could use the real footage to kind of depict that rather than have to like copy it. But yeah, it's I think it's a film that, that is very diplomatic would probably be a kind way of putting it. His estate are obviously like involved and you know they've given rights to all the music and you know you do have you do have these instances where you have non non-official music biopics you know there's been one about david bowie and i think there was and there was another one well, i suppose priscilla didn't get the rights. Well, yeah yeah priscilla priscilla as well yeah 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 so i mean the david bowie one was also quite bad but the priscilla is an example a great example of like a film that it is able to use the life of a famous person and actually make a valuable statement about them rather than just like, and he did this and then he did this and then he did this and everything's been approved and we can't depict things in a way that kind of skew it too far to this way or too far to that way. And I, be, I think even down to the fact that when he's talking, the sequence where he is being told that he has the melanoma on his toe, which is going to be a, a death sentence for him if he doesn't, if he didn't act straight away and his decision not to do that is done it's done in a kind of way where he's like well you know obviously it was you know full it seems like illogical and foolish for him not to want to sort of extend his life and do everything he could to to save it save his life but you know they, they frame it as him like sticking to his his the creed that he has presented through all his music and all his life and you know his politics as well and you know they they present it as him being fairly happy to die if anything like you know he's 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 Mm. he's very comfortable with his mortality and you know that's that's it and i'm no conspiracy theorist but i don't believe that we necessarily know exactly what happened (laughs) i I do believe there's a little bit of fuzziness around the circumstances of bob marley's death i mean like you know i I don't want to kind of go too crazy but he was a person that was targeted and i i don't know that you can kind of present it as being like as benign as it was and i think it's something like jackie captures extremely well where it's like we're not saying that it's one thing but we're just saying that this is a much there's a sort of darkness around this yeah that's the thing like you know i don't think it's a film that has any desire or i think probably the the makers had any real ability to sort of cloud the 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 sort of the 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 gospel reality of of you know the official the official line on his life um that's very much what we're getting here you know as as there's a really fun moment where you see the recording of the song exodus that's done in a way that's very kind of organic and you 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 know it's maybe the one scene in the film that's not a very kind of wiki sanctioned depiction of some biography where you actually see a moment of like oh this is about creativity this is about how bob marley actually created music and there is something quite authentic about it but those those kind of sequences are are few and far between i mean one of the things that really kind of troubled me in many ways was the fact that i mean you know he he had many children from many different women and you know i think that everyone has ways that they organize their life and there are many children that 
that maybe don't have fathers or don't have mothers or families form in in ad hoc ways but you know he there, there is very much a sense in this film of like he is an artist genius the fact that he's he has kind of sired all these children doesn't matter because he you know he needs to be making music and making money and doing these important political things and his children are kind of just scattered around as kind of flotsam and <laughs> You know, it's it's a bit like the, there's a sequence at the end where where you know that it's trying to suggest that oh well he did have a relationship with his kids and he did give them these special moments, but I just didn't, but I just didn't really believe it, and I, and I really I felt throughout the film that like you know it, I wasn't on side with that idea of like having that sort of dereliction of duty, you know, that kind of fatherhood being just some sort of like thing that happens in the background. That, that, that probably like loads of women had to deal with. Yeah. And just that it kind of weighs on no one. I mean, even exactly. if he's kind of blase, but you know, there's, but I have to say when, when you started talking about what you found very disturbing, I did think you were going to talk about the wigs because wow, what a selection <laughs> of wigs. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess you've got they, you know, tr- they've got to try as best they can to, to do, to do the wigs in, in a film like this, but yeah, they're quite conspicuous shall we say yes yes well, um bohemian rhapsody did to freddie mercury's teeth one love does to bob marley's hair i would say yeah uh scores <laughs> scores on this one uh in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect probably like i'm saying it's a three two two i don't think it's like a an offense i you know i in, if anything i think give you know it's one of those things of like giving it a two star is maybe even giving it is worse than giving it a one star because i don't think it even has that kind of sense of oh I, you know it's so bad you have you kind of have to see it i just think it's very bl- you know bland middling forgettable film really despite the best efforts of people like lashana lynch who i love and even you know even um uh, kingsley benadir in the in the lead role i mean you know i i, I really I, I really like him as as a performer and you know i i think i feel that looking for some of the sort of positives that you know he's obviously put a great deal into sort of trying to get the jamaican patois which you know he does throughout the film but but yeah it's at the service of something that i just don't think is particularly worthwhile yeah i know i agree with you i think generally acting wise uh people are innocent i think kingsley and lashana are, are, are both very strong some people are squandered i, I couldn't understand why james norton has such a small thankless part and Michael Ward basically doesn't have any dialogue. Um, but I think I'm generally like a three, two, one. And the one comes not because it's so offensive so much as like, you know, you, you don't get to have that many opportunities as a biopic. And so it's like quite depressing to me that like for at least a decent amount of time, this is going to be the Bob Marley one. And like, who knows what we'll get next? Because it would have to really fail disastrously and like completely be erased from like the cultural imagination to justify somebody making another. So yeah, squandered opportunity makes it kind of, I suppose, a one for me. Kind of robbed of what I think could have been a really brilliant film. So I suppose we're saying skip that um and instead <laughs> david you're going to give us a non-movie recommendation something to do perhaps instead 
Okay, this is a weird one. Um, I have got this like old retro, well, you'd call it a retro games console, a uh, Super Nintendo. I, I sort of was doing a bit of a clear out and found it in the, uh, in my, uh, in my wardrobe and sort of, d- and, and this weekend I kind of ended up cleaning it off and dusting it and using some like Q-tips to kind of get all the kind of grot off it and, uh, fired it up again and it was like in perfect working order. So I, I, I spent a little time revisiting some of the, the games that I was playing in my kind of, early teens so like many many years ago now and uh one of the ones that i really enjoyed is this game this is this is this is very 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 old school it's a game called uni rally is that is that a game that's uh, that's uh, come you've ever come across and that does sound familiar my sister's a big gamer i do remember that being around it's it's a it's a game where you're racing unicycles and uh and you're doing stunts with unicycles and it's and it's kind of a little bit famous because it was you know how pixar has the lamp well pixar sued the makers of this game uni rally because it had these like sentient unicycles because they looked a bit similar to the sentient lamp oh. they're, they're kind of like if you win the you know the the unicycle kind of bows and if if you lose it kind of like falls on the floors and cries and and Pix, pixar won this case and the and the game was kind of discontinued and i still think it's probably you know if you wanted to play it there's loads of copies floating around out there but like it's a really good game it's a really fun it's you know it's a prop you know a really really good fun sort of like innovative racing game and yeah i ended up like spending a few hours catching up like playing uni rally over the weekend to uh, in a bid to uh stick it to the pixar man wow i mean they're not doing great either <laughs> in terms of creative output uni so rally one in the end they're down but fair enough <laughs> Uh, so if you've got thoughts on these films you can email truth and movies at tco london or tweet us at lw lies next time we'll be discussing two highly anticipated titles dune part two and evil does not exist and we have a very exciting interview or two in the mix thanks for- even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 